0: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year, will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th. 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The first early bird discount will be available until August 22nd. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
1: Hi, this is Steve Ray and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm pleased to have as a guest this week, Stephanie Quadra of Terrastoria Imports in, of all places, Utah. Stephanie, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for the invitation, Steve. Thanks so much.
1: We met at recent uh, Vin Italy, and I was really intrigued by your story about how you got into the wine business, but more particularly um, your recognition of Utah as an uh, opportunity for fine wines, particularly Italian fine wines, export to the United States. So can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into the wine business and why Utah?
2: Sure. So uh, 2007 is an important year for me because that's the year in which my family and I decided to emigrate full-time to Italy. But the last six years of our American life, my American life in particular, were spent in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, While I was living in Utah, I wasn't involved with wine at all. I was actually too busy having children. But when we moved to Italy and eventually decided to uh, establish ourselves and, and make a home for ourselves in Milan, I became acquainted, I was introduced uh, to a gentleman named Sebastiano Cosia Castiglioni. Sebastiano is the owner of Corciabella and Chianti Classico. Um, fortunately for me, uh Sebastiano decided that he wanted me to come on board at the winery to oversee communications and marketing. And when he first made that uh job offer to me, essentially. I was, I was taken aback because I, I knew very little bit, uh, very little about wine. I, I, I certainly enjoyed wine. I, I, I consumed it on a weekly basis with our dinners, but I didn't know anything about it, really. Uh, what he was interested in was my background in journalism. And what he uh, basically offered to me was the opportunity to come on board as an insider to one really one a gem of the Canti Classico one of the most outstanding estates i've encountered so far in italy and document their trajectory going from the winery was established in 72 but from the ninth, late 80s on were really um a leader a leading a leading producer when it comes to organic viticulture, and eventually biodynamics. So that was my full immersion experience into wine. I, I stayed on board at Porchabella for about seven years, where my, as, as with all family-run estates, you end up wearing many hats. And this was a really positive thing for me. So it wasn't just doing marketing and communications, but it was really getting involved with every aspect, everything from production to distribution uh, meeting the people, the cooperages that made the the barrels where, you know, iconic wines like Batar and Camartina are produced. So I really was able to get this uh, 360 degree vision of what the world of wine was about. And I fell in love. Um, meanwhile, I kept a home in Salt Lake City and I was going back to Utah every summer with my children. And I started to see this, this opportunity, this incredible opportunity that was being missed. As you mentioned in, in the intro, few people think of, of Utah as, as a land of opportunity when it comes to bever- beverage alcohol distribution. And nothing could be um, further from the truth, especially when it comes to two cities, Salt Lake City and Park City. And, and there is where the idea, kind of my light bulb moment came. It's not so much I need to go and conquer an entire state. There were really two cities that were booming economically with a thriving, um, diverse population that would really astound you. People coming from not only the two coasts, but from all over the world. And they were used to not only drinking wine, but drinking well. And they also had big homes and big cellars to fill. And there was no one really there to to answer to that demand. And there came the idea of
1: Terrastoria Wine Import. Cool. So not not in the, an opportunity for sure, but not necessarily even a micro-opportunity. I think it's a very focused opportunity. You know, when Americans, for the benefit of non-Americans who are listening to this broadcast, when we uh, think of uh, Utah, we think of Mormons, we think of Robert Redford's Sundance Festival, and we think of skiing and Park City. And that's kind of about it. It's kind of a, I won't say forgotten, but it's not top of mind. And yet there is this population there of uh, drinkers who are really um, uniquely set up to appreciate fine wines, and this represents an opportunity. So, but it's not just the population, so all of that is great. You have a lot of suspects in those two cities, but there are some things that make Utah really, really unique, some good, some bad. Uh the first one being it's a control state. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what a control state means.
2: Well, basically, in a nutshell, we're talking about a monopoly system, not, uh, you know, it's it's if we if we talk about Canada, if we talk about the Scandinavian markets like Sweden, uh, there are a lot of similarities. We use the word control, and that sounds really scary. And I should mention, um, as of this year, just a couple of months ago, the state of Utah, and I think it was a really smart move. They changed the name of the state agency that oversees purchasing and distribution of beverage alcohol from the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control to the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services, which I think is is huge. And it's also very telling because it's it's very representative of a cultural shift that is in play right now in the state of Utah.
1: Um, Okay, so a control state, but it is kind of unique in another way or another couple of ways. Uh, One of the things that makes Utah very unique um, is the fact that you can market directly to consumers as an importer and a distributor. So while the three-tier system does exist and it is a control or uh, monopoly market, um, there are some unique things that make it easier to do business in Utah as opposed to harder.
2: As long as the state is always the vehicle, and that is the case I'm an importer. I'm, a f- I'm federally licensed as a as a wine importer. I bring my wines in directly. I have a warehouse in Salt Lake City. I bring all the wines that are in my portfolio straight to Salt Lake City through the port of New York. So everything comes from Italy um, direct to Utah. And when whether it's a private client or a retail client that needs to purchase my wines, they essentially have two options. If my wines and very few of them are uh, listed, but if they are listed through the state um, wine stores, they're able to go in and, and purchase retail right off the shelf. The majority of my uh, portfolio, I should mention, are actually uh, what are called special order items. So you go to my website, you see what I have in, in terms of offerings this season. My, the, you know, the customers that that follow me that are loyal to the Storia. Mission will go online through the state. Uh, and I should mention, this is available only to Utah state residents. They're able to go through the DABS uh, website, make a uh, place in an order and have the wines that they're interested in delivered to the closest wine store, their neighborhood wine store. That's pretty much how it works. So I'm speaking directly to the end consumer but it's always going through through the state. The the state basically serves as as the distributor. One of the things that is most refreshing um, about working in Utah is that I establish a direct relationship with the end consumer. And that's something that is super unique um, for an importer. I don't have to go through any intermediaries. The state certainly doesn't help me sell wine or market wine or... uh, get any closer to the consumers that that are interested in my products but they don't get in my way in any way and this is something that I think I have to say out loud because there's an assumption not just by outsiders I think outsiders to Utah don't give it any thought at all It's people living in Utah that assume that the state is somehow blockading me or blockading anybody that is in the beverage alcohol market That's not the case so basically if I know who I'm speaking to I know who I ultimately, and need to market my wines. Two, I'm able to communicate directly. So what that means is uh, I have an Instagram account. Anytime I'm bringing in new wines, the first thing I do is broadcast the fact, hey, followers, this is what we have coming in from Terra Alta in Catalonia, or this is what we have coming in from Mount Etna in Sicily. And basically, I've established a rapport of trust They get to know me personally, Stephanie Quadra. They know me. They've had dinner with me. They've interacted with me personally. And more often than not, my customers, whether it's a a private client or a restaurateur in Salt Lake or Park City, they're buying a lot of these wines without the benefit of even tasting them before they've purchased them because that's not an option that's available to us in Utah.
1: So you've got a limited audience, but they also... Uh, have limited options of where they can buy. And that's really uh, a, a wonderful coincidence of two factors. There's a bunch of other factors, though. Maybe you can go through them about what makes Utah unique. And you can say challenging, but also each challenge is really an opportunity.
2: That's certainly how how I see it. I think um, the fact that Utah is so overlooked, the fact that Utah has a, a thriving economy, and I should say it's not just a thriving economy, it's a highly Diversified economy, so you have a lot of different personalities, a lot of different profiles in terms of consumers. But again, um, the level of education is quite high. I should also mention, and I think it's not um, it, it's not speaking to wine specifically, but it's part of the ecosystem. Education overall is is really important. It's a, it's, a, it's 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 uh, something that you don't get away from in Utah, and and I think one of the things that has helped my business thrive um, and grow over the last five, six years, is the fact that people that are used to educating themselves about any topic, they're applying that to wine as well. So there are two, there are more than two, but two that I'm really um, close to, two wine uh, schools in Salt Lake City. One is the, the Wine Academy of Utah, and the other one is the Wasatch Academy of Wine. They have been Uh, wonderful partners for me, because even though we're not in business together, we certainly support each other and they're able to really reach out to people that have an inkling. They know that they're interested in wine, but I think something that's unique to Utah is that people, instead of jumping into things blindly, they like to inform themselves before uh, they do so. And that's where a project like mine that focuses, especially on artisanal wines from wine regions that are kind of off the beaten path, not necessarily from grapes that you've ever even heard of. It's usually the kind of um, curious consumer that's willing to educate themselves that is is best served by this type of project.
1: And I think that's, uh, it, it's a really great fit for a lot of, call them specialty Italian wines or Italian wines that have some unique properties that make them, well, I would say non-supermarket wines. Um, you need an educated audience. And so this is kind of almost a self-selecting marketplace. That part's great. One of the other things that you can't do, which is a big problem, especially with wine, is you can't do um, tastings.
2: They, I can do private events. So, you know, as with all things, it's just a matter of knowing uh, the nuance, being familiar with how things uh, are worded. And there are wine events are huge in Salt Lake and in, in Park City. Um it, it's, it's always a matter of finding a partner, which has been really, really a positive, one of the most positive and reinforcing aspects of the way I, I, I run Terrastoria. Essentially, by building a, a direct relationship with local restaurateurs or hotels or even, as I mentioned before, um, wine academies, we're able to reach out. To a captive audience, we already know that people that frequent a certain type of restaurant with a well-curated wine list, it's a, it's a given that they're interested in, in in the wares that I have, you know, that I'm bringing from, from Italy and, and to a certain extent also from Spain. So by partnering with local businesses, which is also in the spirit of Utah, it's a very pro-business, pro-community, pro-collaboration type of environment it's 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 we've been able and I say we even though I run the business by myself I certainly would not be able to do Terra story if I did not have the involvement and buy-in from the rest of the community and my community in Utah are the consumers the restaurateurs and and really people that are part of that that culture i I, I see wine business as not a business. I see it as part of a culture. No one drinks wine in isolation. So the kind of people that are involved um, with the skiing that you mentioned with, uh, you know, that, that type of lifestyle, they love cooking, they love fine dining, they love traveling. All of that is part of that, that sphere. And that sphere is, is really, really growing and exploding, um, within five or six zip codes in Utah right now.
1: And I think we have in, in market the marketing side of the industry, we have this kind of simplistic attitude that sampling is one of the most productive marketing promotion tools that we have. And, and to an extent or to a degree, that's absolutely true. But sampling somebody on... You know, a quarter ounce of liquid as they're walking through a store is one thing. Being able to sample them at, when you're doing a dinner with pairings and all the rest makes sampling that much more more effective. Um, and it's not called sampling uh, at that point in time. So once again, turning a problem into an opportunity. The same thing is true or a similar thing is true with taxation. We all know that uh, not only is there federal excise tax, but each of the states has their own type of uh, tax on um beverage, alcohol. Talk about the, the, the Utah structure and where you found opportunities there.
2: Yeah. Well, in Utah, we don't call it taxation. It is taxation in effect. But in Utah, it's just called the markup. So basically, whatever the state is tacking on, on top of what my my price to them, and that ultimately becomes... The price, there's no such thing as, as wholesale in Utah. So whether you're a restaurateur or just, you know, private Joe, you're paying the same price per bottle of wine. And what's interesting, and I fell into this really kind of innocently, it wasn't something that I, I sought out to do, but it was by virtue of the fact that I had an interest in small producers. And when I say small, tiny producers, the average production across my portfolio is about 20 to 30,000 bottles a, a year. Um, per producer. And Utah, the DABS of Utah offers a huge discount on their markup if you're able, if as an importer, I'm able to certify that the winery in question produces less than 100,000 bottles a year. So instead of their standard 89% markup retail price, they lower that markup to 49%. So there's a 40% savings just by vouching, championing these small family farms, which I should mention has a lot of um, currency in a place like Utah.
1: Yeah. And I would add to that, we have this, uh, call it a tax reduction called CBMA. It was from the Craft Beverage Modernization Act. It has a much longer name than that, but those are the the letters that are chosen. Um, And basically that reduces federal excise taxes by about 90 percent on producers making less than a uh, hundred thousand proof gallons essentially every producer you're talking to fits into that qualification
2: yeah so I do that as well I file for the CBMA when I when I import and then I benefit uh, down the line once once I get to the retail um, end of the of the chain <laughs>
1: So the net net is where a lot of people come to me, a lot of producers come to me and say, you know, I really don't like the three tier system uh, because everybody else seems to be making more money on my product than I am. I'm the one that has to take the risk of owning the vineyards and weather and, and harvest and all the rest of that stuff. The reality is it's a it's a a lot less of a US model in Utah than it is a European model in the way wine is sold. It's much more of a fair game. Everybody pays the same price. There's not any of the the pricing creativity, shall we say. And
2: I should also also mention that the the markup, this taxation that goes onto beverage alcohol ends up going into a state fund that ultimately funds public schools. So there's there's actually a really interesting model there where you feel that you're contributing on one hand, you know that there's 70 percent of the population in Utah that doesn't consume alcohol, but that minority, the smaller portion that does, is in in a way con- contributing to the to the local state and to the broader community. So it's it's a win win, I think. Yeah, and my
1: my uh, m- mantra to a lot of the producers I talk to, when you think about the U.S. Don't think about the U.S. as one country. It's 52, actually 52 different regulatory entities when you think about it, because Montgomery County, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. function as separate regulatory entities. And if you're only producing 20 or 30,000 bottles and you're only going to export maybe 5,000 of those, then it makes sense to focus on one, maybe two markets as opposed to the U.S. itself. And here's a niche in the state of Utah where the opportunities are really set up to benefit the smaller producers. And I never have thought about that, frankly, until I met you. And now all of a sudden, this seems like, hmm, this is an ideal place to go. So,
2: and I think it, it's fair to say, Steve, that Utah is not alone. It's not, it is unique in many ways, but I'm sure there are other Utahs out there. The United States, and this is another thing that when we talk about the fact that it's not a monolith, it's not one country, it's vast, it's a continent. And everybody wants to be on the two coasts. And I get it. And I think that can be an ultimate goal. But I think it's a mistake for small producers to want to enter the market through those highly saturated, highly competitive, highly jaded markets. There's a lot of markets in between. And there's basically the way I look at them, they're these nuclei. And if we wanted to be semi or pseudoscientific about it, it's almost like where you see an international airport, a university, a diversified, a thriving economy, more often than not, you find people that drink wine, and more often than not, they're not really being attended to by the three-tier system.
1: Okay. So let's move on from the practicality to the creative side. You made a movie. You made a documentary. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So On the Fringes of teardom kind of talks about what, what we're discussing. It doesn't kind of. It, that's basically what it um, wants to focus on.
1: Teardom being T-I-E-R. D O M as opposed to T E A R.
2: Yeah, so I kind of coined this this term, tierdom, and 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 basically the way I see it is that I discovered in a place where people feel that there might be an oppressive uh, dominant culture and things are not as open in, as in the rest of the country, I've kind of discovered quite the opposite. Um, as you alluded to before, yes, the t- three tier system is present in Utah. But it is interpreted in a very, very different way. Of course, again, if the majority of people are not drinking, it's not going to really be the big news of the day. But for someone like myself that is importing these small producers from Italy and Spain, what I have found is a wide open space. And what I decided to do is play with the fact that Utah has the Sundance Film Festival. So there's this culture and this interest in not just independent film, but indie culture all, all you know, all around. And so, um, I, I produced uh, a short film. It's thirteen minutes long. You can, if you go to terrestoria.com dot com, you can even find the link to it. And I focused on interviews with. Uh, the women wine producers that I represented at the time and focus it on really the culture of Utah that makes it really a, an ideal place for, for the business model that, that is Terra Story. I don't know if that's self-serving or if I'm inviting in a lot of competition, but I think competition is healthy. And I've already seen the market evolve. I've already seen because I've been become kind of a spokesperson, not so much about selling wine in Utah, but the culture of Utah the business-friendly culture of Utah, and really, it explains why so many people are moving there right now. So, this film debuted in, and I don't even quote me. I'm starting to get a little confused. I think it was 2019 on the opening night of of um, the Sundance Film Festival. We did a, a screening in Salt Lake City, and, and it was a fantastic um, opportunity for locals and the rest of the world alike to kind of understand that there's. Uh, this this massive shift happening in Utah right now.
1: One of the other things you told me that I thought was really fascinating was that you've you've modeled your import company on uh, uh, Kermit Lynch. Can you tell us wh- what you mean by that and uh, what that signifies, both for your suppliers as well as for your consumers?
2: Well, I think Kermit Lynch is uh, is, is a model for a lot of small importers, and, it, and it's very their business model has. Kind of broken with the idea that everything in the United States is big. You know, when I speak to producers, they assume uh, more often than not when they're speaking to me for the first time that I'm looking for massive volumes, you know, because I'm an importer from the United States. So they don't even think they have a chance to put a foot in the market. So Kermit Lynch just represents you know, a break, a, a new, a new age in in wine—not wine importation, wine consumption in in the United States. And when you see those types of models, obviously you say, well, you know, there's 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 not just an opportunity, but it's it's this is a sustainable idea. And going back to Utah, there's a lot of things that are happening in Utah that ha- happened earlier on the two coasts, and now it's just ar- arriving in Utah right now. And so I thought. That model, that business model tweaked to the uh, control state system of Utah would really have, um, could thrive. And I'm still far from thriving because I'm still in, in the beginning. You know, I'm kind of on the upward curve and, and in, a, in, a, in a very good way. But I think we have a long, long way to go before we can put ourselves in the same uh, category as uh, Kermit Lynch. But certainly they are uh, a model uh, a, a very positive model for all of us, small guys in the wine business.
1: So a couple of things that that kind of identify you and, and, and others in your category, if you can even say that there's a category, is a focus on indigenous grapes. And uh, obviously with Italy, we know that's a big part of the story. There's some a lot of different uh, numbers I've heard, but over 600 indigenous grapes. You're focusing on those that maybe even um, the... the, the the least known of them. Um, can you tell us, a, a, give us an example of a couple of the varieties and maybe why you decided on those?
2: Well, part of this project is also to give a voice to, to regions, not just to a specific uh, producer, but also to some areas that aren't really familiar outside of their immediate area. And when I say not familiar, my home my main home as i mentioned before is in milan a lot of the producers and the grapes that they work with have never are not well known in milan as well so that just gives you an idea they're very localized and part of the the urgency of working with these small producers is that these grapes are disappearing and so, if we have an opportunity to give a voice to these producers who do not have marketing departments like Porcha Bella had, you know, when I came on board, and don't have the opportunity—whether it's for linguistic reasons or because they're too busy making wine so they're not traveling, you know, around the world and, and marketing their wine—if if I can, you know, contribute in, in even a, the smallest way of of giving a lifeline to these to these grapes and to these regions. Uh, I see TerraStoria as a a perfect vehicle because I have a captive audience. Um, I do speak the English language. So even though I'm just selling to a small market like Utah, this is a case in point. I'm sitting speaking to you on this podcast and people from all over the world are listening to us. So this is uh, an amazing soapbox that I have. And that's how I I see kind of uh, this ethical part of of TerraStoria as as being able to play a role in, in the preservation of these historic parts of, of Italy and, and Spain, I should mention, Italy um, to a larger extent, simply because this is where I live. This is the country that, that I spend the most time in.
1: Speaking of which, you're currently in Puglia. So not only are you an importer, you're also a producer.
2: Yeah. So we want to talk about indigenous grapes that, that need advocacy, that, that are really in, in need of, of promotion, I and my husband and I, Roberto Lasorte, and I um, started a project in 2019 in the Valle d'Itria. So imagine we're in Puglia, but we're at 450 meters above sea level. We're on a limestone plateau, which has a vocation for white grapes, essentially. You don't find red wine in the Valle d'Itria. But what you do find is the disappearance of vineyards, tiny vineyard holdings, the average size of a, of a parcel here in the Valle Dicas, anywhere between seven to 8,000 square meters, so not even a hectare, and they're disappearing before our eyes. So what we decided to do is to start vinifying and commercially bottling a wine that my in-laws have been making for over 30 years. And it's uh, a field blend. So it's not a, a blend that we've created. They're essentially four indigenous white grapes from the Valeditia that have grown together forever. And it's uh, Verdeca, Bianco d'Alesano, Maresco, and Minutolo. These are, are the signature grapes of the Valeditia. And that's just one example. I have Storia to thank. For even giving me this idea, because I've been advocating for these small farms and for these indigenous grapes. And here we had a farm of our own that my in-laws decided to sell. And we said, no, 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 stop. We'll, we'll take over the farm and we'll do something with it. So this is our new project. And, and I'm here in Martina Franca, um, surrounded by truly. So anybody that's been to, to the, this part of, of, Puglia will remember these conic structures where you assume, you know, you almost imagine little gnomes living in. That's where I am right now. Those are
1: called the truly, right?
2: The truly, exactly.
1: Wow. I mean, it's not like you had all that free time to uh, uh, (laughs) deploy on a whole other initiative. That's great.
2: Well, I don't have a lot of free time, but I do what I love. So I think that's ultimately- So you don't
1: work, uh, right? That's the old line. If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. (laughs) So we're talking today with Stephanie Quadra of TerraStoria, and um, how can people contact you if uh, they want to reach out to you?
2: So the best way I would say is through, through the website, um, uh, TerraStoria.com, um, has all the information in terms of where I am, if there are events going on, you can always find me through that. Um, Instagram is also a really good way to, to, to contact me directly, T-E-R-R-E-S-T-O-R-A, uh, Terrastoria. Or at info at Those are the basically the easiest ways to find me because I'm always either, you know, I'm either here or there or everywhere. So a telephone number wouldn't do much good.
1: <laughs> I, I usually end each interview with a, a question um, about what's the big takeaway. And we'll do it again here. Out of all the things that we talked about here, is there a big lesson learned that somebody can apply immediately who's listening to this, thinking about that most of the listeners are or in the U.S. trade?
2: I think it's looking at those spots that are are not already inhabited by everybody else. And and I don't mean to do that in a a casual way. As I mentioned before, I think there are certain criteria. But again, the United States is such a vast country, um, an educated um, market. And when I say educated, I don't want to sound discriminatory in any way, but where education is important. I think Um, more often than not, wine is something that requires curiosity. And wine, certainly the kind of wine that that we are importing or that we're interested in in, in drinking, takes a little bit of thought. It takes mindfulness. And so when you find those nuclei, and there's many of them, there's countless nuclei across the United States where people are interested in, in, in putting a little effort into any product that they consume um those are the kind of little little spots that are are being neglected but that re- are very receptive at the same time so utah is a case in point if anybody is coming to utah um they'll find a, a very welcoming community of, of food and wine lovers but again i'm i'm willing to bet that there's hundreds if not thousands of other uh similar situations across the country
1: yeah i think if we you know think about it as niche marketing uh, people have this tendency to think, I want to come to the US and be in supermarkets. Well, if you're only making 50,000 bottles, it's probably not a good strategy. So rethink the the strategy to one that is both um, optimal and affordable for the kind of resources that, that you have and find the partners that have already um, entered in, in those markets or, or are exploiting them as TerraStory is.
2: I, li- I like the fact that you mentioned, and I never even thought of it that way because in Utah, you can, it's illegal to sell wines in supermarkets, but by virtue of the fact that wine is not sold at the supermarket, the people that are consuming wine are going out of their way. So even if they're just going to the state wine store, they have to make that extra effort. They can't just throw a bottle in, in you know, the shop their your grocery cart when they're picking up other things. So that is an example. Utah kind of puts it on a silver platter for me because that selection. That market research has already done for me. But I think if you look at markets across the country, different cities around the country where local bottle shops, independent wine shops are present, more often than not, that's where you already see you know that type of uh, audience.
1: Cool. Great. Thank you very much. Our guest this week is Stephanie Quadra of Storia Imports out of Utah, but she's also traveling around the world at all of the various enterprises she's in from Puglia, to uh, Milan, to Tuscany, um, and to Spain. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about there is he, she also imports some some product from Spain. So, Stephanie, thank you very much for being a guest. It's been an uh, enjoyable opportunity to meet you and uh, understand your business better.
2: Thanks, Steve. I hope to see you again soon.
1: Uh, well, thank you all for listening. This is Steve Ray signing off for this week, and please tune in next week. We'll have another interesting interview about uh, Italian wines in the American market. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the wine to wine business forum 2022 this year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on november 7th and 8th 2022 in verona italy remember the first early bird discount on tickets will be available until august 22nd for more information please visit us at wine 2 wine.net